Thanks so much for tuning in with me, as always, my producer and friend, Ari David. Always a pleasure. We uh, come to you today with fairly sad news. Uh, it's unfortunately hot off the press. Uh, do you remember that there were three teenage boys, um, varying ages, I think 13 to 17, something like this, um, who were kidnapped in Israel? Either they were hitchhiking or they were uh, lured over by uh, people who were pleading to be uh, helped. Uh, but regardless, they were kidnapped, and then the next thing you know, they're, well, they're dead. Um, so it was about three weeks ago that they were kidnapped, and uh, here we are now. And all we know about the situation was that uh, they, they're not even willing to describe how these kids were killed, which only, of course, leads to the likelihood that they were brutalized, mutilated, and so on. Um, it's, it's, my, my tone is very, uh, sad, um, and I think, uh, understandably so. Uh, I'm a parent, you're a parent, Ari. We have, uh, we can only think of our own kids when we, when we think about the horrific stuff that has just happened to these boys. Um, they're, they're not even soldiers. Not that anything happening to a soldier is justified, but it's, uh, they're just monsters. These people are monsters. There's no excuse for it. There's no justification for it. It's, um, it's a form of a terror, of course, uh, the idea that uh, your kids can be taken and they know that and they can exploit the facts so much that uh, we treasure life so much, that we treasure our children so much, and uh, I guess they don't. They just don't. You know, Golda Meir famously said, and I, I'm not saying that I agree with her because, um, you know, my own take on the Middle East is very different, but her theory as a woman, and, and uh, I don't know if she was a mother, but as a woman, she said, we will have peace, worse to this effect, we will have peace the day that the Arabs love their children more than they hate us. It's a nice line. You know, there's some truth to that. Um, but it's, it's just not the way that they think. They, um, I'm sure they do love the ch their children, and I, I'm sure they do grieve when the, their children die, but Maybe not as much because um, a lot of their children just go out and, and act as suicide bombers. And then, and then somehow that's a holy thing. And it's a wonderful thing. And mothers are so proud of their children, who do, their boys, who, generally speaking, who do that. That they somehow have uh, created great honor to their family. Very strange. Um, but, you know, for me, the only way that uh, the peace process will ever, ever gain any traction is when the Arab world democratizes. And that ain't happening. Certainly not soon. And we just have to brace for a long, long period of time of conflict. And uh, the, the more we, we reach out to them and think that we can have some sort of partner in peace with these very evil people um, who believe that, uh, you know, peace with the Israelis, you know, it's, it, it's, it's an air quotes peace is just one stepping stone to the eventual destruction of, of Israel, well, that's no real peace, right? The only real peace we would ever have is if the Palestinians, and for that matter, the, the, the Arab world, democratizes. And it just ain't happening. For whatever reason, I don't care. Whether it's cultural, whether it's historical, I'm saying that the only way we can have peace is when that happens, period, end of story, full stop. Thank you very much for coming. Let the credits roll. That's, that is the only way. And in the meantime, anything else that we play in terms of reaching out to these dictatorships, 
it's, it's only fool's gold, as they say. It gives us the impression that we're doing something and we're actually only hurting ourselves. It only emboldens the Arabs, the Palestinians in particular, to create more mischief. Uh, and I, th that, that word is not even strong, nowhere close to strong enough. To only create more terror and to, to, to create more mayhem and destruction. Because to them, it's a sign of weakness. When the Israelis um, are tough, when they build up a wall, and they say, we're not going to even talk to you until you guys show us uh, some, some level of uh, democratizing. Then, um, then the, what's the point? That's just, the, that's the point. I, 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 anyway, I'm very sad about this day. Uh, now the question becomes, how will Israel respond? Now, Ari, you and I play chess a little bit, right? Um, there is a move that Israel will make. And what is that move? in your mind? The one I want them to make or the one they will make? The, the one that, you just see it as a chessboard, as it were. This, this horrific thing has happened. What must Israel do? Blow up the Dome of the Rock, retake the Temple Mount, reconstruct the Temple. Okay, I think that's more of what you want to do. I don't think that's going to no, happen. No, like you said, you asked me what move I'd make. That. Right now. I'm saying, what, right. no, what what move will Israel make? Not what a would measured you response. They will drop some flyers warning the citizens of whatever area that such and such airstrikes or ground operation will about to happen, looking for these particular perpetrators of this horrible crime. And then they will try to bring those perpetrators to justice. They will put them on trial. Then they will be given life in prison because there's no death penalty. And then they'll be released in exchange for prisoners in the future, or, excuse me, kidnapped victims in the future the next time Israelis are under pressure to release you know, or you, you someone else yeah. is kidnapped. You raised a good point that I want to address to uh, in a moment about the death penalty, so please remind me about that. Uh, I Israel think, has no death penalty. I know. I know. And that's what I'm going to get to in a moment. Um, I do think that the Israelis will go in. I think it will be more than measured. I think it will be more like the 2008 uh, invasion of Gaza, um, where three years after the withdrawal from Gaza, Israel went in and did a massive attack to weed out these horrific uh, men. Uh, also in 2002, I believe, Israel went into the West Bank and rooted out uh, all these horrific terrorists as well. They might have to do the same thing again. And it's not just to get the guys who, who perpetrated the, um, the killings of these boys. Because it's, you know, it's all good and well to get those, those horrific people who did that. Um, but that's just you know, killing a few flies in the swamp. You have, to, you have to get them all. So if it's not going to be these guys, it'll be some other guys who do some similar uh, bad acts. So it's going to be a very large attack. Um, it might even be called a war. I don't know. I don't know. And it's, uh, it's very easy for me to say this is what I want Israel to do and this is what I think Israel would, will do. But I can tell you, um, you know, from the comfort of, of here being in Brentwood, California, I can tell you that Israel will do it. Uh, it has no choice but to do it. Think what happens if Israel and, and, and Obama should take, take note. Think what happens if, Obama, uh, if Israel did absolutely nothing right? I mean, it, it'll do something, but let's say it did virtually nothing. I mean, they only did a couple minor little um, in, incursions into the West Bank. That's like doing nothing. So if it did nothing, then what signal are you sending to the bad guys? 
you're you're telling them basically, hey, you know what, do you can again. do it again. You can why not try some uh, little babies and why not why not just you know invade a town in Israel itself, uh, not just in the West Bank, but go to Israel proper and uh, steal some some more kids, and even younger kids this time, because you know those are even easier to kidnap, right? A two year old kid, three year old kid. Ah, it makes me sick. Anyway. Um, you're only sending the wrong signal. You have to send a massive response. The Arabs do understand power. Uh, the evil people, generally speaking, uh, understand power. People commit this kind of evil. They understand power. And Israel must demonstrate it. That's the only way. And they're, they're talking about it right now. And uh, I don't doubt that uh, we will see some sort of serious action within a week. Within a week. But, you know, the other thing is... We, again, the chess, bringing up chess is perfect in the issue of pressure. When you're pressured in one area, you don't have to pressure back in the same area. You right. can find elsewhere on the board to pressure. Why doesn't Israel ever bomb the television stations, jam the TV stations that show those cartoons that dehumanize Jews to the Palestinian children? Why don't the, the Israelis <coughs> bomb a school in the madrasas? within the, in quotes, Palestinian territories and destroy the factories that turn Palestinian kids into adult monsters. How about Israel, forgetting a death penalty, say, okay, they've killed three of our kids, we're going to kill three prisoners and do it publicly. Why should we risk our soldiers to root around in tunnels and in, in, in labyrinths trying to find some perpetrators that we're going to put to death or arrest? Why don't we just shoot three Palestinian prisoners in custody and tell the Palestinians, <coughs> any Jew is killed, we're going to shoot a Palestinian? You're saying we should go a little colonel curse on them. I'm saying we go a little... Um, uh, uh, you know, colonel curse, by the way, just uh, is, uh, is a reference to Apocalypse Now and who found himself to be very effective by embracing the extremely evil nature of his own enemies and uh, and being very effective in the process. But uh, anyway, go ahead. Yeah, I'm a fan of Colonel Curtis. But I was thinking more for the modern era, Quentin Tarantino going medieval on their asses. <laughs> you know, whenever... Anyway, you know, a little piece of, uh, you know, 10th century justice. You know... they understand that. Right. They, well, they would certainly understand that. That's, in fact, they respect you. They go, oh, okay. Well, <laughs> Come to play. It, it, it's not, it's not going to happen. Um, but what will happen is if you know, they, they, they still understand strength. And war is war, and they'll say, look, we're at war with you at this point. You've created this unity government, Hamas and Fatah, and uh, we don't accept it, and we're at war with you, and we're just going to obliterate you. But, but what I do like about what you're suggesting is, uh, not that part about, you know, randomly killing three prisoners in, in the um, uh, Israeli jails, because we would just lose all credibility. It's sad, sad to say, but that's the way it would be. Well, not so, shoplifters. I'm talking about murderers. No, I know, you know? I know, but it still be it would be random. And um, I want to get back to the death penalty in a moment. I think Israel is extremely effective at being effective, meaning that they would find ways of um, destroying the infrastructure from within. And uh, I would expect some pretty good results there. They they were very effective in 2002 and 2008. Um, in doing exactly that. So they, they break up all sorts of connections. But like I said before, um, it, it, the breaking up is, is kind of like breaking up cobwebs, right? You can, you can get rid of the cobwebs, but the cobwebs will eventually come back. It'll take some time, but they will come back. So you have to, you have to clear it out. Um, back to the death penalty situation. Um, 
here is a very good example, another reason why we should have the death penalty. Most of these prisoners, uh, not most of them, sorry, many of the prisoners in the Israeli jails, they're not political prisoners, they're true criminals. There's no such thing really as a political prisoner, um, in, in Israel at least. Uh, that's a very fancy word that the pro-Palestinians use because uh, they, among other words like refugee and settlements and occupation, uh, buzzwords that they know resonate with the West. But there are no political prisoners in the same sense that there might be, let's say, in North Korea or otherwise. Here's, here's the situation. If we had the death penalty and we focused on those people who committed to horrible crimes, um, that would put, send a chill up and down the spine of every Palestinian. You don't want to be caught in an Israeli prison because if you're a, a, a Palestinian terrorist, for example, here's your calculation. I'm going to commit mayhem. If I get caught, then the worst that will happen to me is I'll be in an Israeli prison with my fellow brothers um, and we'll be able to pray you know, five times a day and they'll have to give us halal food all the time. And wash our feet. And wash our feet. Us take us CNN. That's right. And give us everything that we might want. And there's a very good chance that it's only a matter of time before the Israelis end up releasing us anyway, despite having a life sentence, for example, because one of my good brothers out there will do something crazy like kidnap uh, Gilad Shalit and I'll be one among the 400 prisoners that they release in exchange for that one Israeli soldier. So, but if you actually kill them, um, certainly not everyone, but ones that deserve the death penalty as we would have here, um, not only would it send a chill up their spine and make them change their calculations, but it would also obviate the possibility of them being released as prisoners exchanged. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a clear um, push for the death penalty. I wish the Israelis would do it. Um, we, our own Torah demands it. Uh, if you truly appreciate life, then you must, ironically, embrace the death penalty. And I do appreciate the irony of it. But if you, if you want to express your horror about the taking of life, you need to be able to take uh, the, the, the taker's life himself. Okay? That's the way it works. And if you don't believe that, and if you're an atheist and you say, well, that's an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, well then, you know what? Frig you. You don't get it. You just have no idea how it works then. You have no understanding of human nature. You're disqualified from having a legitimate opinion on the subject by expressing such foolishness. It is foolishness. And, and that is, you want to deter people from murdering, then you, you impose a death penalty. That's what you do. All right? Um, now, uh, on to some other news that I think is very engaging and interesting. Today, just today, um, speaking about a related uh, life issue, uh, the Supreme Court came down in favor of Hobby Lobby, uh, this, this fairly small, uh, it's, it's, it's a family-run business, but a very large family-run business that um, refused to adopt Obamacare's insurance mandates on the grounds that it violated their Christian principles that it would uh, encourage abortion, and for that matter, uh, morning-after pills, and, and to some extent, contraceptives, I think, as well. And th they're against that. And the, the, the court, not unanimously, on a 5-4 decision, correctly, in my opinion, held that uh, you can't do that. 
You cannot impose that upon groups like that. They made a distinction um, for public entities, and I understand that. But nevertheless, I'm, I'm happy with this result. I wish it were six to three or seven to two, but we'll take it as it is. And that's the law of the land there. Um, this is on the heels of some other very good decisions as well. You'll recall that there was uh, also an, an abortion decision where uh, a lady is now, she was trying to um, protest abortions um, on the sidewalk right near an abortion clinic. And they told her that she couldn't do so, and they had a um, restriction where she couldn't speak on the sidewalk near the abortion clinic, and she sued. And the Supreme Court unanimously held, 9 to 1, 9 to 0, that, um, that it was a violation of her First Amendment rights. And uh, God bless them for it. I, I have to say, I have to respect the liberals on the Supreme Court, Sotomayor and uh, Ginsburg and uh, Breyer, all those, all those guys, uh, for taking on you know, their own president. Similarly, they did the same thing with the cell phone warrants. Um, and I talked about this on my radio show a little bit. Uh, I was very pleased to see a 9-0 decision uh, saying that if a policeman stops you, they can't now look in through your phone for whatever they damn well please. Um, the phones these days are so much more uh, sources of, of information than, than simply the last phone call that you may have made, right? You have all your emails. You have all your, the websites you've recently visited. Uh, you have all your texts and so on. Um, so it, it's an obvious one, right? You just can't do this crap. But this is what the Obama administration was supporting. Supporting. Now, you may say... Yeah, liberal Democrats, right? right liberal Democrats. And, and the funny thing is that liberal Democrats will say, oh, that's ironic, you know, um, that, that, that the Supreme Court is, is supporting a conservative position like this. Excuse me, when... Did we ever say that we like the idea of the police randomly searching our homes or our cell phones or anything private like that? Yeah, the Fourth Amendment is as precious to us as the First and Second. That's right. Here's where they get it wrong. Here, see, what they, what they mistake is they, they misunderstand something very precious to us, which is we believe in law enforcement. Okay? We believe in that. That doesn't mean that we also believe that the police can ransack your home because they have a gut feeling about it. Yeah, we don't want law enforcement criminality. Right. We want law enforcement. Right. So uh, it's not a conservative issue, my friends. On the contrary, the, the, the result of the Supreme Court was a very conservative result. It, it, it's the liberals who love to uh, spy on you and to dig deeply into you and to challenge uh, where you stand on your 501c3 status and want to know who you're calling and everything else. Yeah, that, we'll allow the police the power to regulate you up and down the block. That's right. They're, they're good with the regulation business. So don't, don't make any more mistakes about that. There was one other big decision that came down, and that is uh, the recess appointments that President Obama was making um, you know, willy-nilly when it came to... Um, the NLRB and EPA, I think, and whatever, other organizations like that, which otherwise had to be appointed by the Senate, approved by the Senate, ratified by the Senate. Well, despite the fact that the Senate was still in session, he kept on doing it. And the Supreme Court, correctly, in my opinion, decided that uh, that dog, again, don't hunt. And 
um, they held unconstitutional ever one of his appointments in the context and, um, and shot him down on that. And so uh, this is about all overreach. That's the one thing that's common theme here, overreach, right? This administration acting consistently in an overreaching way. Very, um, very disturbing, um, consistently um, uh, for power grab and everything else. Now today, um, and this president has no compunction about it. He feels that he's being sandbagged. He's disappointed with the 9-0 decision against him. Uh, you know, he blamed the Republican Congress for it. Right. Well, he might as well. Yeah, no, might as well. He might as well. But, but he but, showed but, that kind of petulance. But, but, but two, two of the nine Supreme Court justices are justices that he himself had appointed, Kagan and Sotomayor, right? So to say nothing about Ginsburg, who was very pro-Obama as well, they also um, went against him. So do you think that he ever would, would say, well, I guess we, we looked at it the wrong way. We thought we were right, but uh, you know we'll, we'll stand by the Supreme Court uh, ruling, and uh, reasonable minds can differ. But I guess uh, we'll, we'll take a different approach to this. No, that that would be appropriately modest without having too much egg on your face. But instead, what he does, as he says, the Supreme Court got it wrong. Like he, you know, this 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 president who knows nothing. Yeah, this constitutional uh, professor dunce who knows right. nothing. He knows nothing. And and please, by the way, folks. The fact that he once was given the opportunity to teach constitutional law does not make him a great constitutional scholar. Please, okay? It's very easy to teach in a law school. And when people want uh, somebody that they perceive to be articulate and a minority to serve as a constitutional professor, they, and they want to believe this, that they, they prop him up. And, and you know, it's very easy to teach constitutional law. It's, it's not that hard. And, and apparently he, he wasn't that great a you know, professor either. They, they like to make him seem as if somehow he was a rock star. Put that in air quotes if you like. But uh, he was nowhere close to that. But so please, did, just he doesn't know what he's talking about. He has no idea what the Constitution looks like. He, he seems to be against it, especially when it gives him less power. I put it to you, my dear listener, that the Constitution, having discussed these three cases, the Constitution was designed to prevent the actions of exactly this kind of president. It knew the power-hungry nature of those who might be in charge. The Constitution was not meant, as it turns out, for, for noble people like George Washington, or Abraham Lincoln, or even Ronald Reagan. It wasn't meant for them. I mean, it, certainly they had to abide by the Constitution. But th those three men that I just mentioned, you know, it was in the mother's milk for them. To, to not um, try to usurp power, to not try to expand their own personal power. Yeah, if right? they were king of England or they were the czar of Russia, the England and Russia would have been fine during their days right. of ruling. That's right. A constitution wasn't needed for noble men like that. Right. You know, but, but petulant, immature people. Right. Like the constitution this. was designed to stop exactly this kind of presidential overreach by exactly this kind of uh, this kind of president, and. You know, the founders, if they were to watch all this, I think they'd be very disappointed in Obama and many other ways too, but, um, but at least they would say, you see, that's why we need the, that's why our constitution's in action. It's kind of like the insurance policy, right? You know, you, you don't really notice your insurance policy in action until you actually have an accident or there's a fire in your home or whatever. 
and then you get to see how good your insurance policy is. Yeah, you right? don't need car insurance if you never get into an accident. Exactly. It seems like a waste of money. Yeah. But uh, why are all these restrictions here? Why do we? We're good people, <laughs> but the Constitution is there precisely as the insurance policy against bad people. And I put it to you that that Obama is a very bad president, who would, if he had the opportunity, use his phone and his pen. Oh wait a minute, he is using his phone and a pen, um, and he's trying to restrict power. Uh, sorry, expand his own power, and it gets outraged. Outraged, you understand when people try to limit his power. Oh, you, you were right. He does try to restrict power. Ours, not yeah, his. Yeah, that's right. He, he wants to, he wants to uh, trivialize the uh, influence and power of the Congress and the Senate and to maximize his own power. He, 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 he perceives the Congress and the Senate as you know, political niceties. They should all be advisors, right? And they should be doing what he wants them to do. And, you, and, and they are his minions, because we're all supposed to be unified around him, you understand. And he has a great, a great idea called Obamacare. And why aren't you supporting this? Because it's so good for everyone. Don't you know it's going to be insuring millions of people? That's what I said. That's what the, the Affordable Care Act specifically says itself. So if you're against it, then you must be against poor people and, and against insuring people for their very reasonable um, needs and concerns about very real health risks, my good sir. It's to, you know, he, imagine his eyebrows furled at the, at, yeah. while he's the, saying so. And the pattern that you're talking about is so consistent. He's, no matter what issue, it's that exact same petulant, I'm smarter than everyone, so why don't they just listen to me attitude. The, uh, on amnesty and the immigration and the illegal alien issues. Today, he, or the other day, I don't remember what day, I mean, every one of his speeches is so tiresome and boring, can't keep track of them. But he's saying basically, why won't Congress... Just get together and compromise and do what I want. Yeah. Yeah. I, I heard that speech too. It's that by definition, it's, that's not compromise. Yeah. Compromise is you do a little bit of what they want and they do a little bit of what you want and no one gets everything. Right. Right? Right. It's, it's uh, just so <coughs> petulant. Petulant is a very good word uh, uh, regarding the way he views it. He, he has a distorted view of reality. Oh, like and, the spoiled brat kid who never got told no by anyone. Yeah, I, it's 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 almost a syndrome of uh, fatherlessness. You know, yeah, no dad ever put his foot down and said, "No, Barry, right. we're not giving you that toy." Right, uh, and and didn't even have to be that. Even if they did have the father that had that, he he would constantly be told he's great just for existing. You know, he rode the right wave. He he went to the right school. Uh, very, you know, he is articulate. There's no doubt about it. Um, and he was just frothed up, um, you know, one wave after the other took him to all the way to the presidency. I'm not even talking about affirmative action, although I do think he's the first affirmative action president that we've ever had. I'm not even talking about that. It just, the media just soaked him up. Everything was just seemed to be at the right time. It could not have been better uh, for uh, one President Barack Obama uh, to become president in 2008. And then, of course, all the other circumstances of the financial meltdown and so on. It was perfect for him. But, and then one day, we, almost six years later, we ask ourselves the question, who is this guy? What has he actually done? Uh, he, he wants us to claim that he's achieved when he's done absolutely nothing. Because, and the reason why he does it, it's a psychological um, uh, quest, a need that he must have. 
he's been told all his life that he must be great. And every time he turned around, he ended up in, in this or that great school and, you know, ending up, of course, with Harvard Law School um, and, and before then Columbia and before then Ox, uh, Occidental and before then Punahou, all great schools. And then he was, you know, was fluffed up right into the Harvard Law Review, which is, you know, everyone wanted him to be the first black president of the Harvard Law Review so they could say they had the first black president of the Harvard Law Review that they voted for him to be the first black president of the Harvard Law Review. So all these people, one after the other, just wanted to fluff him up. And then the same thing happened with the state senate, same thing happened with the senator position. And he did nothing. This man has done nothing. Well, actually, I, I argue with that, Matt. We've discussed several well, times. Well, okay, he's been distracted. I think he would have been the greatest president had he spent all that time resting. You know how he said, I will not rest? If he just went and rested, the country would be great right now. Well, yeah, that's why I say I think my toaster would do a better job than, than he, he's doing. The only difference between a toaster and, um, and somebody like uh, the, this president, uh, President Obama, is that, a, you know... Uh, a toaster uh, won't burn down your house? <laughs> a, to a toaster won't destroy the economy. That's right. Uh, just by doing nothing. Where, where we do need a president, where we truly need a president, it's, it's not about setting agenda with the Congress or anything else. It's not about, you know, confirming and signing bills, which is very important, of course, uh, but it's all about foreign policy. That's where a president really is necessary. It's where he needs to be commander-in-chief. what the job is. Right. That's the job. He's the one who decides, you know, we're going to build up our military so that we don't have to uh, live under fear for example, and understand the, the evils out there. That's what your main job is as president, uh, President Obama. That's what you need to be focusing on. Now, my toaster couldn't do that. But I, I bet you, I, I can't tell you this, my toaster recognizes evil much faster than President Obama recognizes evil. How can I say that? And, and I'm not joking around here. Because Obama goes backwards. He believes evil is, is good and good is evil. So he's actually got it backwards. My toaster doesn't have that. My, my toaster is neutral, at least. It doesn't mistake evil for good. It doesn't mistake good for evil. That's why my toaster would be a better commander-in-chief. How do you like that? I think you're discriminating against a kitchen full of other appliances That's that true. are equal to the job as well. <laughs> That's right. My refrigerator is pretty damn Your good, too. Your hand mixer, perhaps <laughs> your food processor. That's right. We've dishwasher. Got, we've got some uh, culinary uh, equipment. Uh, yeah, frying pan. It's good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah. Saute pan, frying oh, pan, listen, saucier, <laughs> saucepan. There are many good candidates out Dutch there. Dutch oven. <laughs> Any of them. Good candidates. Um, you know, you think you think that the the Republican uh, field is is good. Uh, wait, wait till you see my kitchen. The other thing is, all of those devices and utensils give better speeches than Obama. Articulate, he must might be. But boring. Oh, it's terrifying. Listen, um, I, I, I would say, I, and probably the way that we should title this, this whole podcast, because it's really the theme of what we're saying, is uh, the, the, the toaster versus the president. And we have to, it, he begs the question, what is a president supposed to be doing? Right? And there are times where I hire employees in my office, and once in a blue moon, it's very rare, 
okay, because I, because I usually spot this very quickly, that they do such a bad job that they actually hurt the firm more than had they never come in in the first place, right? <laughs> and you, you know, if you're, if you're a boss out there, you, you own a business, you know what I'm talking about. There is always that employee that just mucks it up for everyone. They, I mean, I'm not even talking about doing evil things like stealing money from the till. No, which just, is, of course, they're just their stupidity, their lack yeah. of attention to detail, filing something so it's never found again, and it's a piece of evidence that would exonerate the client who's accused of murder. That's right. Or whatever. You, you know what I exactly. mean? Just, or, or, or just you know, missing the statute of limitations. Or take a restaurant, for example. Uh, you know, not you know, exposing the restaurant in such a way that it gets downgraded from an A rating to a C rating. And that, of course, kills your business. Um, you know, one, one person could do that. And you can suddenly lose everything. Just like that. One person. And in many ways, these decisions that we've been talking about, um, the, the, the reaction of, of the country toward him is, is really a reflection of that. It's trying to fix the problems that this Obama guy has been foisting upon us, right? That's what the Supreme Court is doing, saying, no, you gotta, let's clean this up. You can't impose this on people. You can't you know, have the police search your, your records. You can't, I mean. You can't it, deem a Senate in recess when they're there. Right, yeah. It, that, so, it doesn't work that way. Right, he's creating a lot of busy work for the, 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 uh, the Supreme Court, which uh, should never be in place, but there it is. It's like me, the boss, you know, now having to deal with this guy who, as you said, lost the files. That would have been exculpatory evidence. And now, you know, we have to worry about malpractice or something. Um, he's like that guy. Yeah, going through your shredder documents and trying to put all the jigsaw puzzle pieces together to find the document, yeah. you know, or something like that. Busy work. Um, you just, it's you the just, ultimate yeah. make work project. Right. You rue the day that you hired him. And the country, I think, is ruling the day. They're discovering that this guy is a nothing. You and I saw it back in 2007 when he was first entering the field. We knew that there was nothing to him. And, um, yeah, and we paid lip service to the idea that, nothing okay. Nothing good to him. Well, we paid lip service to the idea that, that something that, you know, now that he's president, let's hope for the best. But you and I knew that that I would, didn't say that. Well, well hang on. But you you I, said Yeah, but, okay, that's true. So I said it. <laughs> because that's what—that's all we had. We had to deal with it for back then, the next four years, and we just figured, okay, well, let's just hope for the best, and that that he won't be that bad. Uh, maybe we got it all wrong. Maybe he'll be another Bill Clinton or a Truman, or you know, somebody who's, you know, not not as good as a Republican would be, but but wouldn't be as damaging as what we're seeing right now. Okay. And, but, but we all knew in our heart of hearts that, look, the man has no experience um, in executive office. He has no experience in work. He's never met a payroll for crying out loud. He's, he's, he's not even operated a lemonade stand. He scooped ice cream once in his life for a very short summer. And, and that's it. But and, why, and, then, and we expected him to make good decisions. Yeah, but why do you always, we conservatives always do that? You just did. Uh, you stepped into a trap. I hate it when Republicans and conservatives do it, and it's the same kind of thing when candidates. I hate it when say, you hate me. When constant candidates <laughs> constantly say, "Well, it's about the economy," and I'll complete the analogy in a second. What? Why do we always have to say um, 
he has no experience. This guy had plenty of experience. He had plenty of experience destroying people's lives in, in Southside Chicago, riling them up over non-issues. No, I... He had plenty of experience managing huge projects with very dangerous people like Rashid Khalidi and Bill Ayers. He had a lot of experience in the religious community cozying up to a certain guy named Jeremiah Wright. This we'll, guy had we'll, enormous experience. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that. I mean, it's, but, 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 wait, 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 you know, wait. It's, it's worse than no experience. All right. You're wrong. You're wrong. Because you might as well say that, because uh, everyone has experience in something, right? You know, you can say you have experience in doing drugs. You know, and you have experience in being homeless. You, ex you have experience, <laughs> you know, in robbing banks. I mean, it's, you know, yes, yeah, so he had experience. He, he, he walked on the planet for so many years. He's, he has experience in whatever he did. But he did not have experience in the areas where it did count, which is being an executive or running a business. And that, at the very least, is essential. Now, that's a foundational thing. It doesn't guarantee that you'll do a good job, but it's foundational. Yeah, but I'm just saying, then when you go to the other side and you go, he's in office, okay, let's hope for the best. When you see that kind of what I'll call anti-experience experience, yes. there is no way you can have the conclusion, well, let's hope for the best. You know <laughs> the worst is coming. I, I, you know I know we were well, that's up what, to the worst people in the world. Well, that's why you and you, you both you and I ran for Congress uh, in 2010 uh, for the 2010 election. It, it because we felt this was a very uh, critical uh, fulcrum moment in history, and we were right. But uh, and and we knew that everything that we knew of this man uh, cried out that that he was dangerous. And that he would be at best extremely ineffective. But what we've seen is a combination of both. That he did engage in dangerous behavior. Uh, and I'll, I'll explain in a moment, folks. So don't, don't think that I'm being vague here. He did engage in uh, dangerous behavior. And, he, and he's certainly ineffective. The ineffective part, I think that's easy. I don't even have to go into, uh, to, into that at all. Uh, he's brought nowhere the economy where it should be. Uh, the economy actually retracted. Yeah, he's, uh, not, almost, he's not even good at implementing his own liberal policies. Right. He did not even the, – the, the economy retracted almost 3% recently. Um, the the, the so-called recovery is, is so anemic. It's the worst so-called recovery since the Great Depression. Uh, and and it's, it's pretty pathetic. And it's all because of his uh, you know, putting the, the brakes on the economy in every way that he can. Uh, his foreign policy has been a disaster. He's, he's truly shown himself to be a very weak paper tiger, as it were. Um, he, the Obamacare program rollout was just, it's so pathetic. And uh, the, the myriad other things he's done, the Benghazi thing, the Fast and Furious, the, the IRS scandal. Um, I remember one the, we the, don't the, talk the, about anymore, Pigford. Yeah, that's yeah. right, Pigford. Uh, All of them. The stimulus package, of course, that didn't work at all. Nothing. I mean, we all knew that it wouldn't work. But the dangerous part, I'll explain. This man, this president, um, is dangerous. He's dangerous when he cozies up to the Russians and says, once I get reelected, I'll be more flexible. He's dangerous when he goes out to the world and says and apologizes for America's history. He's dangerous when he uh, encourages the police to um, r r rifle through your cell phone for information. And he's dangerous uh, when he uses the IRS, the most powerful weapon that the federal government has, to uh, target you.
for your political beliefs. He's dangerous. And that's just the only a few of the, the items that we're talking about here. Uh, he's dangerous for his belief that uh, capitalism is something that is a necessary evil, but uh, wants to minimize it as much as possible. <clears throat> All these things are, are extremely dangerous. And, and I would say, ultimately, from a foreign policy point of view, he's dangerous for failing to recognize evil and mistaking evil for good and good for evil. That's the nature of what we are seeing in this, uh, uh, with this presidency. And you're seeing the reaction of the country, whether it's the Supreme Court or the Congress or the media, for that matter. They're, they're, we're all reacting, saying we've got to do something about this guy. Shall we fire him? If only we can fire him. And we can't. Not for another two and a half years, my friends. Well, folks, I hate to leave on a sad note, but here we are. We have to confront the facts on the ground that this president is leading us to dangerous territory. And God help us for the next two and a half years. This is Barack Lurie. This has been the Barack Lurie Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week.